Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell, and today we are opening Hollywood's crypt to review 2000's Canadian horror movie Ginger Snaps. <laughs> Which I realized about 20 minutes in. Oh! It's a sentence. She's going to snap by the end of the movie. Uh, Clever. <laughs> I, it, Those Canadians. I got to tell you, it took me a solid 45 minutes of the movie to realize they're in Ontario. Okay. This is in Canada because, you know, I'm used to any movie being in the U.S. And if it's not in the U.S., there's like clearly subtitles or it's a foreign film or something so <laughs> you mean the ontario license plates weren't enough to tip you off i don't think i actually noticed them because no it's like in the first scene when the garage opens and the mom pulls her car and there's a big ontario license oh well plate. that's a really great like way to establish location uh uh i don't know what the hell i was doing <laughs> You were scribbling a note at the time. I was texting you, hey, this movie has bad dog gore in like the first minute. In the first minute, right from the start, boom, dog violence. So anyone who likes dogs, which is both of us, we're sorry. We had to watch it too. (laughs) And I mean, like... All in all, this is a this is a good movie. This is better than a lot of movies, but you know, I kind of just I missed Toxic Avenger and it's laughably fake. Hey, we poured SpaghettiOs <laughs> on the belly of a golden retriever level of gore. No, this was accurate yeah in case our viewers missed the movie ginger snaps is the story of the fitzgerald sisters ginger and bridget both girls are obsessed with death but ginger's fascination with gore accelerates after she is bitten by a werewolf the same day she starts her period a distraught bridget attempts to find a cure for his sister before ginger tears their lives and the fitzgerald family limb from limb yeah and and so right off the top this is was made in 2000 and it actually I saw um, this kind of this credit that I, I really appreciated. Apparently, if you take the one shot of the uh, calendar that says when there's a full moon and extrapolate to when there was actually a full moon, this is set in like 1993. But it was shot in 2000. Interesting. Yeah, right. But it was shot in 2000 and has very 2000 filmmaking sensibilities. Well, and also, like, the fashion is very 2000-y. Like, I'm trying to think of 1993 fashion, and I'm thinking, like, way bigger pants than we saw. I'm just, I'm having a hard time placing it in 1993 in my head. And, And to be fair, that could have been, like, they just, the filmmakers didn't have a time locked, and it took a a lunar pedant to take that one second miss it shot and be like, Oh no, 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 no. Here's when there was a full moon on October 30th. And it was a Friday. Um, so it, it's intent. It, it's possible that this was meant to not be in 1993 and somebody, you know, discovered that fact after the fact, but like the, <laughs> the, the, the point is like, 
God, first of all, 20 years ago, which mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm finally at a point where I'm sitting here like, wait, no, I I remember the Millennium Ball drop. I remember like, like I can remember the year 2000 and you sit here and say, yeah, that was 20 years ago. On the one hand, I'm totally shocked. It totally doesn't feel like it. You know, I've said this on the show before. On the other hand, from a presentation standpoint, this feels like a 20-year-old movie. Yeah, it's strong Buffy vibes. It's, um, I wrote that her, um, there's one scene where Ginger comes to school after she's a werewolf and she's all glammed up in her tight peasant top and velvet skirt. And I was like, oh, that was a look. (laughs) That was a look for junior high Stephanie. She definitely tried to pull that off, but was not cool enough. But this gave me major flashbacks to teenagehood because I was 15-ish in 2004, 2005. So like... Ginger's whole thing, whole aesthetic, I was here for yeah, it. Yeah, totally. Um, and just like the the so I got to say the um the first third of this movie is very hit or miss to me from a like it's very hit or miss to me in terms of just the quality. There is a general unpleasantness to everything. Mm-hmm. You know, we start the first minute and there's eviscerated dog corpses all over the place. We meet our <laughs> our you know our two leads, Ginger and Bridget. And- yeah, they're very unpleasant girls. They're not I mean, they're not it's not like they're jaded for reasons. They're jaded to be jaded. No, they they very much are and and more than that it's just like it's it's something about the way they're written. They're you know, they're written to have the fascination with death. And that leads to the um, that leads to the opening credits montage of all of the fake gory crime scenes the sisters make, and just like there's nothing to root for outside of like okay they have a deep sisterly bond and this kind of us against the world sort of thing. But I was struggling to like much about the first, like, third or so of the movie. And then, like, that's the movie, I think, where the plot holes are the messiest. Yeah, I think that's when one of the girls gets knocked into the corpse of a dead dog that's on the field for reasons. No one noticed the dead dog on the hockey field before this moment that was the worst offender for me that straight up took me out of the movie because yeah it's everyone is playing field hockey on the school field and somehow it is only when it would be shocking that bridget is pushed into a eviscerated dog corpse that again is just out in the open with dozens of people like who who would have seen it instantly but for 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 butt movie it shows up when it does yeah there's a lot that's there for the sake of moving the plot along but that isn't earned like the gothy teenager let's kill ourselves shit that they do is really annoying and serves no other purpose than later in the movie it pays off but it 
it wasn't set up well. Like they just hate living for reasons, right? Because they don't like suburbia. Yeah, they're they're moody goth teens, and they you know they have this teen idolation with death and darkness. It it needed one more round of edits from the writers. I feel like I, I feel yeah. like if you just decided no, this doesn't work. Let's figure out how to get there another way. You could have because like. Bridget Bridget has some interesting things about her character that pay off within the movie. You know, she in the first scene, she expresses like insecurity with how other people are going to critique her eventual suicide crime scene. And that, and that, that was really interesting. And, you know, it, mm-hmm. it kind of foreshadows how she's the one who loses the lust for death while Ginger literally gains a lust for death i needed more of it i needed that second round of edits but i i could like i could see in the distance what they were trying to go for there i think it's also the fact that the metaphor of werewolf and lycanthropy wasn't really it it wasn't really thought through it was really muddied and there were a lot of moments that I kept wishing it would go further. And I kept comparing it to Teeth in my mind because yes. Teeth did such a good and careful job of playing out the metaphor. Yeah, and and I think we, we said this in the last episode. I had heard this was like Teeth. And it is like Teeth in that, you know, it, it kind of tiptoes up to some similar themes but the thing is and and i gotta say like i didn't hate ginger snaps but it made me look back on teeth more favorably and like i fondly remember teeth in 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 retrospect it's been like 20 episodes or something Uh, (laughs) halcyon days gone by when we were mere babes right um but like the core difference i think is teeth was a metaphor movie that dabbled in horror elements ginger snaps Mm -hmm. is a horror movie that dabbles in metaphor elements and there's totally a difference there is a difference and i kept wanting more of that literary tie so much so that i was overly picking up on things that may or may not have been intentional like what oh like the tail that Ginger has at one point sticks out of her underwear and it's kind of like a tampon string. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. And then there's also a scene in the very end where an, where an anecdote for the lycanthropy is being developed and there's a piece of white cotton that is laid gently into a pool of red liquid and I'm like, oh yeah, that looks familiar that's about the rate at which cotton absorbs red liquid okay sure sure i i like that you picked that up because i i was really here for for all that sort of stuff you know i spent the whole time being really fascinated with watching ginger as she gets more and more animalistic more and more wild and i really Mm -hmm. had time for the metaphor of lycanthropy and hormones and like Mm -hmm. you know she gets into a fight with her mom or her sister and i'm sitting there being like okay would she have actually had that fight anyway if she hadn't been attacked just because 
she's a 16 year old going through her first period and and you know going through puberty um yeah not to call out my own husband but there was one point where he was like god she's being such a bitch and i was like well she's experiencing pms for the first time that's a right. lot yeah <laughs> I'm not a werewolf, and I was pretty bitchy the first time I experienced PMS. There's, um, there's, I I used to watch uh, American Dad when it was still good, and there's a bit when, when their daughter Haley, they do a flashback to her getting her period for the first time, and it's just her screaming, what do you mean it's every month? And I'm like lighting the house on fire or something. Uh, that's, that's accurate. Yeah. But some, <laughs> all, all that to say, I, I, I liked that you were making those pickups because like specifically for the tail and the cotton ball, I didn't catch that. I didn't have that same reaction. I was, I was busy being utterly skeeved out by the tail because it was just close enough to like body horror to mm. really make me uncomfortable. Um, mm. and then don't watch orphan black Andy. Okay. Real quick. I looked up John Fawcett. Cause I was like, what else has this guy done? And he is one of the creators of orphan black. Oh, that makes sense because there's a scene with someone with a tail that huh. looks incredibly similar to this tail. Not my so fetish. much. So no, no, no. But it's, um, it looks like the same kind of makeup. Like it's, skin fleshy like and it's protruding in the same way and so fun little comparison interesting yeah not my fetish potentially john fawcett's Mm -hmm. oh maybe (laughs) oh his poor partner maybe he has to they have to put on a tail yeah (laughs) anyway Neither here nor there. Neither here nor there. Um, But like I could have done with just a little bit more of that because you're right. Like, like this movie dabbles in actually having some sort of message about comparing monstrism in this case, lycanthropy to hormones and specifically, you know, a period. And, you know, there's, there's something in there about the idea of a lunar cycle and a physical cycle, but the movie just kind of loses interest in, in that message after a while. Point syrup. Daddy, you want some? Well, and it's simultaneously trying to do so many things. There's a metaphor for addiction there because, um, Ginger keeps saying she can't stop. But there's right. also a metaphor for the spread of STIs because she continuously links um, her bloodlust to actual lust and she bites a boy and turns him into a werewolf. So there's that. And then there's also this idea of like female rage, PMS, hormone situation because all of the women in the movie have a different response to not only what ginger is going through but to what they go through like the mom is fascinating in the last act of the movie yeah that's a word (laughs) fascinating bloodthirsty who's to say um real quick did did you see her did you see ginger bite jason when they have sex in the car um okay 
I that wasn't entirely clear to me, and so I spent the whole time thinking that she had transferred the lycanthropy vaginally, and I was oh, here for that. That 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 was again. That was like oh. Okay, there's something interesting here. Give give me more, and then they really didn't. Oh, interesting. I man, when we remake the movie, that's what we'll have to do. <laughs> I mean, it's been twenty years. It's it's due for a remake. I mean, since we're remaking everything these days, you know, the cult fiction <laughs> production company will uh, be a powerhouse in the uh, post quarantine film scene. <laughs> we'll have to sell a lot of Tetsuo Kusakabe shirts. I know, I know. We better start getting those demands in. <laughs> <laughs> Just talking about a little bit more about the the bloodlust, because that was probably the metaphor that they stuck with the most. Specifically, like Ginger makes multiple references to the idea that feeding and attacking is the same thing as having sex. You know, they, they accidentally kill Trent, uh, Trina and we get the one moment where their, their fascination with fake death crime scenes works to their advantage so that they, they can hide that body. Um, but you know, they're burying, uh, their bully in the shed and Bridget's like, if I wasn't here, would you eat her? And Ginger just like genuinely laughs and compares eating her to fucking her. Yeah. And that was also, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, you, this might've been what you were just about to say, but you know, that comes up later and later and, and in the end of the movie when we haven't even really talked about poor Sam, but you know, Sam meets his demise because Ginger attacks him and they'd been building up like the jealousy love triangle thing. I was sitting here wondering if some part of where Ginger like was sitting here as she's eating this man and devouring him and murdering him and like equating it to stealing the, the guy her sister likes. Mm. Oh man. I didn't even think of that context. Ah, okay. Yeah. That was, that was the first thing I think of. And, and the movie really doesn't do anything with it, but they, you know, they established that line. They made it such a, such a big thing for you, the audience to think about that, I, I did go back and think about it and I couldn't help but wonder. Um, I think I was so, I was so sidetracked by the line um, that Ginger has where she says something to the effect of, it's almost like touching yourself, you know, every step. And then at the end there are stars or no, I'm sorry. At the end there are fireworks mm-hmm. and you're just like, uh, I don't know how to feel about what you're saying. <laughs> this is weird. And then there's also a line. Okay, tell me if it's just me. But there's a line where Ginger is crawling towards Bridget. And Bridget has been knocked over and is on the floor and is like desperately trying to crawl away from her sister. And Ginger says kind of in a throaty growl we're almost not related anymore. And I was like, are you going to fuck then eat your sister or eat then fuck your sister? Is this for like the incest crowd? Cause I'm not comfortable right now. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm trying to remember like 
the the context around that scene because I remember that moment. I in the moment I didn't really get that same vibe, but I can a hundred percent see how you did. And I'm, I'm thinking, okay, what vibe did I get? I very much got the vibe of a soft threat from ginger being like, you know, I haven't attacked you because you're my sister and that line is getting blurry. And we just spent, you know, three, four minutes talking about how ginger comes to equate um, murder and and sexual gratification. So yeah, I can I can see where where that hypothesis came from. Well, it's in the same scene where she says the "it's like touching yourself" line. It's it's mere sure. seconds later. So I'm like, uh, and now you're threatening your younger sister, who you spent the entire movie defending from a custodian who supposedly ginger has this whole thing of like thinking that the custodian is after bridget i got zero creep vibes yeah that came out of nowhere with me she she kills him and and you know justifies that to bridget as he was always a creep he was always like looking at you and stuff and if that was supposed to be the case, it really wasn't played up enough from the filmmakers so much so that I, I sat here and thought that it was a bold faced lie from ginger and just like, you know, the loosest we, neither of us believes this, but I'm going to say it kind of justification for attacking the dude. Cause no, I got, I got zero creepy vibes off of him. Yeah. And my creep vibe is normally turned up all the way to 11. So the fact that I was like, no, he's just a dude. Yeah, I didn't get any. Yeah, the only vibe I got off of him, and I, I don't know if this is bad, but like the, the fact that he was like this elderly Asian man kind of helped me realize it was one of the things that clued off clued off to me that this is like in our, Ontario because, you know, I mean... Uh, both Vancouver and Toronto have fairly large for the demographic Asian populations. But then I, then I had to sit here and kind of equate it to, so this is like the kindly Latino janitor at, at any American high school. Uh-huh. <laughs> Social justice. One, two, three. Woo, woo. Or not kindly, uh-huh. but yeah, I, I was trying to be like, oh, is this racist or is it is representative? Um, um, he, he, well, I was going to say, I mean, the most racist thing is he's got an accent, which like, I'm not going to sit here and say because the Asian character had an Asian right accent that that is necessarily, you know, racist for, from the filmmaking perspective. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, but you know, high school is a total hormonal toilet, so. Oh, yeah. That isn't my quote, but that was such a great line and so indicative of who the girls were as characters. Just kind of the sassy teen girls sitting on the edge of the quad. High school is a total hormonal toilet. Oh, yeah, that that absolutely, like, solidified them as the bitchy goth girls, which they absolutely were. (laughs) 
Um, real quick, you you mentioned how Ginger is Bridget's older sister, and and that is you know that is the case in the movie. They they really play that up. It kind of helps Bridget's arc as like you know she she goes from the one who needs defending to the one who is literally on the offensive. Um, but but fun fact. Catherine Isabel, who plays Ginger, is actually four years younger than Emily Perkins, who played Bridget. How old were they when they were in this movie? Do you know? I, I don't off the top of my head, but let's see. Ginger Snaps was in 2000, and Catherine Isabel is... Do, 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 do. I was smart enough to have IMDb at this time. So Catherine Isabel was born in 1981. So she was 19 when they filmed this. So she was nine. So, so Ginger was 19 and Bridget was 23. Um, as they, I'm sorry, she is 23. She's 23. And, and yeah, so, so the actress is, is Emily Perkins and you, uh, click on her IMDb profile, her, she, her headshot has a, a bit of a glow up. I, I, I gotta say, but she still looks like totally young for somebody born in 77. Yikes. She's, t- I mean, I'm sure that's why they picked her because she looks tiny. Yeah. But also in that movie, did you get any like eleven vibes just because of how she carries herself? I I really didn't. I, I saw your point there, and I, I I'm not mad about it. Um, maybe it wasn't on my brain because of the hair, which was an incredibly bad wig. But it what like like Such a- it. it if she had been a like 2004 goth chick and shaved her head, then absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Uh, the other fun thing I, I, I saw on IMDb. So casting Ginger and Bridget took like four months, it, like this insane amount of time. They looked at so many Canadian actresses and were just like, we're never going to find our leads. And then um, uh, Emily Perkins and Catherine Isabel both auditioned on the same day. And it was like, oh, nope, there we go. Okay. (laughs) Oh. I'm not dying! That makes sense. And and I really got a highlight. Like, as as much as I don't like them in certain ways for much of the movie, I, I did have a connection with, like, their own chemistry with each other. Yeah, their sisterly chemistry, the like the need to get up from the table at the same time, like if one of them gets up and the other one gets up and like runs right. after them. Like there was so much for me as someone who has who is female presenting, female identifying, and has sisters, like I was like, oh, oh yeah, this is one hundred percent like the shared room and trying to like somehow find your personality in a shared room. Um, the fact that like what one of you does, the other one does, is very. I can identify. I, w- I was hoping I you could because I was so curious. You know, I'm I'm the oldest of three and a male, so I like aside from yay sibling bond, like I I didn't have as much I could identify. You know, I shared a room with my brother up until like I was eleven or twelve. So around the time I would actually start like figuring all the stuff out 
Yeah, all the puberty, all the puberty stuff. stuff. <laughs> Speaking of all the puberty stuff, what did your teenage room look like? <laughs> so I had, I mean, I had like three of them because it was right around that time that my, yeah, my oh, family right. bounced around uh, a fair bit. Um, but I, the, the way you, you worded it earlier was what was the thing I had that made my room my own? Because like Ginger, Ginger and Bridget, mm-hmm. first of all, what is up with their basement? They're unfinished. I have yeah, I, I got no clue idea. either because it said, it, you know, the opening shots, um, the opening shot showed that it was like one of those build a suburb type deals but none of the houses seemed under construction. So it's like, why is your basement undone? Neither here nor there. Um, Ginger and Bridget had the, the purple like bead curtain things on their bed and, and uh, to go with their lovely crosses of gory photographs. Um, the thing that <laughs> I had was when I was 14, I want to say I spent a year living in Minnesota and my family let me paint all four walls of my room key lime like green screen and it wasn't intentional i didn't i didn't know what a green screen was yet green but i wanted like these bright ass fucking ostentatious walls and my parents let me (laughs) oh they had parental we moved our kid in the middle of high school middle school but yes or in the middle of Middle we, school, we, yeah. We moved our son who just discovered theater and was the lead in all three school plays. And now we just took him away from that. And he's going to a K through 12 that doesn't have a drama department. Yeah, yeah. He can paint his walls green. <gasps> oh, <man>. <laughs> <laughs> no more than my parents who moved to me right. directly in the middle of high school. So what you know, was your team you, room like? So my teen bedroom in... Florida is probably the most indicative of teen girl. The walls were lavender. Um, I had dried roses around the door frame. And I had, ready for it, a princess canopy. Nice. <laughs> Are you familiar with yes, what that yes, is? Yes, yes, I am. I had to explain it to Alex. He's like, what is a princess canopy? And I was like, so when you have... A four-poster bed you have a canopy hanging on that right and he's like yeah and i was like except i didn't have a four-poster bed and he's like so it's like that shit that like hangs from the ceiling and drapes all around the bed and i was like yeah mm-hmm. i had glow in the dark stars in it and he's like you are absolutely the woman i married okay oh <laughs> yeah yeah you, you had a butterfly net <laughs> yep a very pretty i think it was pink pink tinted with glow-in-the-dark stars, butterfly net. Hey, I like it. And and dried roses around my doorframe because I was so petal. Like I gotta I gotta say, petals or like straight up bulbs. Straight up like the roses. Huh. Like took the roses, hung them upside down. They dried and then put thumbtacks around the stems. So like full on flowers. Got it. Okay. I, I like the I commitment know. to presentation. Ugh, 15-year-old me was so tragic. <laughs> it 
Bless that girl's heart. She tried so hard. She did. But other things that 15-year-old May wanted was a belly button ring. And oh my God, the belly button ring scene. Holy (laughs) shit. I was like, that is going to get infected. So I wasn't as uh, bothered by the piercing scene. Although, yes, like at least in the Parent Trap remake, they they had like hold an apple to your ear and we'll pretend the apple's fruit acid is a disinfectant. Like they didn't even have that. Uh, the the moment where Ginger just straight up rips out her silver be- belly button ring as like, yeah, this thing's bullshit. No. That was the moment that had me going, ah! <laughs> ah, huh, huh. Mm. No. But I mean, if you heal at superhuman speeds, I guess that doesn't hurt you. Yeah. Or at least you get over it very quickly. I don't know. Yeah. So speaking of healing at superhuman scenes, I was very much here for the practical effects of the movie, you know, and, oh, and, yeah. and more than anything, that's the gore. But, you know, it was also like Ginger's scars were very cool in, in, in a way that like, obviously they're, they're fake and they're glued on, but they still managed to look incredibly real. Um, this isn't the bloodiest movie we've seen, but it, it certainly didn't skimp. You know, the the dog scenes, like we said, were incredibly realistic and upsetting. Um, as were mm-hmm. the the moments where, like, she she murders the uh, the school counselor or the teacher or whatever he is off stage, and oh you know you see him and he's just got gouges taken out of his face. All of that was really great, as was Where Ginger. Oh, yeah. last act of this movie is just straight up like, okay, we're a horror movie now, and it was effective. Mm-hmm. It was very effective. Um, there's the moment where Sam and Bridget are hiding in their closet, and you hear like some rattling, and Bridget's like, "Wait, what was that?" and just stops. And you're waiting for the jump scare. And it's very, um, hey, guys, remember the Blair Witch Project? Like, that shot is a direct homage, practically. But the tension, probably the most tense I've been during a cult fiction movie. Easy, easy, easy. <laughs> so I, I was very i was very here for that um you know we, we talked a, a earlier a little bit about um how i i love the moment how sam is like hey you're hurt you're mutating into a werewolf yourself let me be the one to like take her out and and you focus on you and then he immediately gets pulled out of that um pantry and destroyed and eviscerated um the scene r.i.p sam r.i.p sam he didn't deserve it no he wound up being pretty okay yeah actually speaking of things that sam does pretty okay i love that he has the soft hobbies like he researches he has all these books he has werewolf lore he is into botanicals like yes he's a weed dealer but he has this greenhouse that his family owns and so he's also really just into plants. Yes, he also deals weed, but he's also into plants. And so there's this kind of very gentle role reversal of 
Sam is really gentle and he's really soft and he like watches out and is very perceptive. He knows right away that Bridget is not a werewolf and that her sister is. And then here we have Ginger, this super testosterone creature who's extremely aggressive and extremely provocative. And it's like, oh, there's a very nice role turning here in a movie that examines roles quite a bit. Yeah. No, and I, I was very here for that. He was he was actually a really well-written character. Um, th- that was the one instance where I could have done with less like, yeah, Bridget and Ginger are so edgy, they're tripping on it. And more of like set up Sam as as we're afraid he's a bad dude so that when he turns out to be okay, it's more payoffy. But that's just because I agree with you mm-hmm. so much that I, I, I liked his character and his character's softer side. Well, I think they tried with the whole yeah. Trina thing and him ignoring Trina and him. Trina at one point says he's a uh, cherry hunter, which, ugh, gross phrasing. But, and then he proves himself to be like, he's not here for that. He has porn by his bed and Ginger picks it up at one point and she shows it to Bridget and says, see, see, this is what he's into. And he said, yeah, but I'm not like that. So he's clearly like trying to stand up for himself, trying to prove himself to be a better man. And then he gets dead. He gets got. <laughs> he gets got. <laughs> and you were telling me you really liked that moment from just a, a visual perspective. Yeah, because him like almost dying, he doesn't fully die until... Bridget stops drinking the blood to kind of lure Ginger in. She has started to, to be like, look, I can be like you. I can try the thing. And then she stops and says, no, I can't do this. I can't stomach it. And that's when Ginger kills Sam. Because she was like, maybe I can keep this guy alive. If she's going to be on my side, maybe I don't have to kill him. But after... Bridget kind of rejects Ginger and rejects her way of life. That's when Sam gets God. Right. And that, that was a really cool moment visually, the, the red hallway and all of the blood all over the floor. Um, you know, by that point we are getting full on shots of the where Ginger, um, puppet animatronic, whatever, whatever it was. And, and that was like the kind of the climactic moment of the film for me it's like somewhere in ginger's monster brain it is still the offering of sisterly bonds above all and it is Mm -hmm. the offer of join me be like me do this thing with me because you're my sister and bridget you know refusing that and accepting the hero the the heroic final girl role in the movie which ultimately you know she plays out and is successful with yeah while we're talking about female relationships can we talk about the mom for a second (laughs) yeah we can talk about the mom okay is it just me or did the mom full out just imply hey we're gonna burn the house down and we'll leave your dad in yes yes and i lost my shit at that moment (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad you caught that too because i was like oh maybe it's just me and alex was like i was kind of unclear and i was like 
Really? Because I was pretty sure she was burning the house down with dad inside. Mom spends the entire movie being so chipper, being the stereotypical mother of a goth girl, being so like, oh, it's your time. You're becoming a woman. Sit by me. I'll tell you what boys want. And then, then yeah, is, is the one who realizes my girls have committed a murder and that without any like without skipping a beat in her brain that turns into okay we're burning the house down and all of the evidence and me and the girls are going and living somewhere else like she is a psycho (laughs) she is so great and she has i mean yes crazy but she has the most poignant line they'd all blame me yeah so Bridget is talking with her mom about her mom, like, discovering Trina's body and the little she shed out back. And the mom said they'd all blame me. And it directly correlates to the line. Ginger has a line earlier that says, it's never a girl who does the killing. They won't come after us. We're either sluts, whores, or the virgin next door. So there's this idea of, like, women's roles, and the mom perfectly capitalizes on her own moment when she says they'd all just blame me. Yeah. They wouldn't blame dad. No, no, no one would blame dad. And that's part of why he has to be in the house. (laughs) (laughs) That was like the last flirtation they had with trying to like have something to say. And it, it actually, you know, hearing the two lines back to back, there is kind of this nice through line of the sexism in how women are viewed and how women are disrespected in that they can't be the monster they can't but they can birth the monster yeah no she she did a great job that was that was a that by the time you get that twist it's like oh okay you're a fun character and then they just leave her ass at that buffy party Mm -hmm. never to be seen again (laughs) yeah i wanted more for her yeah i wanted like follow that through have her have her be there at the end have her trying to deal with the situation. I mean, maybe she takes one look at what her daughter has literally become and faints. I don't know. Real quick, just because there's nowhere else to put it in. During that that rager in the greenhouse, um, you know, Ginger is uh-huh. getting as the moon is coming out she is getting more and more animalistic and her her face prosthetic in that scene was giving me straight up vampire willow vibes. <gasps> yes. <laughs> I love that you caught uh, that. Yeah, it was very on the nose for like 2000s era Buffy. And I was like, wait, which came first again? And it's only the fact that I know that Buffy was out in the late 90s because Alex watched it religiously uh, after school because he's that because he's that nerd um, that I knew that Buffy came first. And I was like, oh, they borrowed heavily yes, from Buffy. Yes, very heavily indeed. Ginger's changing. How do you feel? Wicked. But so, uh, I, I gotta ask you, um, did you enjoy the movie all through and through, and would you consider it cult? I liked it a lot. I wouldn't say I sure. loved it, but I liked it a lot. I liked... There was a lot to like about it. The acting was fantastic. I love that it doesn't end well. It doesn't tie up with a nice, neat bow. It ends with an amazing shot of the two sisters, like, crawling towards each other and just, like, holding each other in the 
mire of the apartment or the excuse me the basement i love moments of it overall i wanted it to go further than it did sure but overall i liked it yeah i i agree that's very much where i fall on it this is our our 26th movie um and i uh or, or actually i think this is a, this is our 27th movie and i would solidly put this in like my top half top 10 somewhere somewhere in there um even with its flaws even with the things i didn't like about it there was enough that i did wind up really liking about it yeah as for whether or not it's cult i mean it's quotable it maybe has a following there were two sequels there were, and, and that's where I think this was cult because the story as I've heard it, um, this so Ginger Snaps came out in 2000. It it was a Canadian movie that was not, it, it couldn't have been actually marketed in the US because it had a $5 million budget and a US opening gross of $1,500. And it is, it is just not that bad of a movie that it, you know, it, it has such an abysmal showing. So it, it, it had there there has to be some sort of Canadian financial figures that this movie did a lot better on. But this movie was one of those like blockbuster smash hits that did really well in um, VHS and DVD sales. So much so that those two sequels weren't made until this movie got its own following interesting and i can't talk about the sequels without like talking about the sequels because they delight me um the first one and we're not going to watch them but the first one is a direct sequel and it's all about bridget um and apparently it's set in a sane asylum because you know that's what you do with a horror movie sequel um the third one is actually a prequel and it is set in like the 16 late 1600s and it stars the same two girls, Catherine Isabel and Emily Perkins. Their names are Ginger and Bridget. It is a werewolf movie, but it is a prequel set in the 1600s. And that is the kind of like, just fuck it. We're, we're making it. I don't care. Audacity that I giggle at and adore. Interesting. Like, I don't want to see it. <laughs> I, I don't either, but it kind of reminds me of Back to the Future. Because one, sure, fine, great. Two, makes sense. Okay, you're gonna go to the future after going back to the future, sure. The third one on the train in the Wild West makes zero sense. It's that same kind of logic of like one, two, three? Yeah. Yeah. Bees? Bees. Yeah, it's Back to the Future 3, only no time travel, but Doc and Marty are still there, and they're completely different characters, but at the same time, they're the same exact characters. Like, just, it's just <laughs> literally, yeah, we're being paid to make a movie, fuck it. <laughs> Speaking of fuck it, the words just and cramps don't go together is my favorite quote from this movie. That's a movie. hell of a quote. The word just and cramps don't go together and true and something every boy much like i i think it was they they said it to either sam or jason um every every boy in high school needs to have that menacingly told to him so that he understands (laughs) 
Um, I, I was juggling a couple of different things to be my quote, and and what actually needed to be my quote from Ginger Snaps was in real life, Mariah, my wife, um, turning to me the first time she saw where Ginger and said, that looks like an albino ball sack. <laughs> that is the best line that will ever be said about this movie, in this movie. Like, I lo- I could not stop laughing. I had to pause the movie. I love this woman. <laughs> I love this woman. I'm going to tell I love her. her. I'm gonna tell her. <laughs> oh, I'm okay. I'm okay with that being like one of our few like recurring jokes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's you wonderful. Know, you, you know what's not a joke but is recurring? Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon. What you got, friend? So I was able to connect somebody from Ginger Snaps to Kevin Bacon um, playing Six Degrees for anybody who is unfamiliar um, in two moves. Catherine Isabel Ginger um, was in Freddy vs. Jason with a uh, delightful actor named Gary Chalk, who is also the voice of Optimus Frickin' Prime in Beast Wars. Um, so I have all the time in the world for him. Gary Chalk was also in Trapped with Kevin Bacon. So. Nice. Yeah. I also did it in two. Okay. Also using Catherine Isabel. Nice. She was in Disturbing Behavior with William Sadler, who was in Beyond All Boundaries with Kevin Bacon. Nice. Yeah, well. we're tied. And I will always take a tie when I'm playing against both you and your husband. <laughs> and let's be honest, you're playing against Alexander. You are not playing against me. I just turn to him and go, I'm pretty. Can you come up with a thing? And he goes, okay. <laughs> it's a lovely system. If, if I had that, I would do that. <laughs> Speaking of a lovely system, I should also say I really struggled to find a reading rec for this episode. Until I remembered that there is a collection of cultural histories of female werewolves called She-Wolf, A History of Female Werewolves by Hannah Priest. All right. And it is fantastic. Excellent. It's it's basically a pop cultural perspective of all of the times in literature, movies, TV, etc. that we've encountered female werewolves starting in the middle... 1500s, I'd say. Cool. Okay, yeah, I'm here for it. Right? I was like, oh, yes. So, again, that's She-Wolf, A Cultural History of Female Werewolves by Hannah Priest. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, uh, the last thing is, you know, I I didn't look at if Ginger Snaps has won any awards. Um, It actually, so I'm seeing now, it, it got some praise in, like, horror and sci-fi um like fangoria that that kind of stuff but it it, it didn't win any oscars and you know we're, we're sitting here agreeing this was an enjoyable movie so i think we need to go ahead and give it some sure sure thing what's your oscar uh so my oscar for ginger snaps actually uh is a character we barely talked about and it is best spousal <laughs> burn you know, oh, no. <laughs> we, we talked about Ginger's mom. We vaguely mentioned Ginger's dad and how he's going to die in a house fire. 
Ginger's dad, Henry, is one of those, like, completely useless, befuddling, like, barely a character, tropey kind of characters. I think he's got, like, five lines in the entire movie. But one of those lines is one that he uses to totally dunk on his wife. Because he's, like, watching his daughters go do something in the shed. And he's like, I think they're up to something. She goes, nonsense. They're just being perfectly normal teenagers. And he turns to her deadpan and goes, okay, if they're being perfectly normal, why are they interested in anything you have to say? (laughs) Rude. Total dunk and why she's going to murder him. (laughs) It was not long after that that she realized, I have to burn this man alive. Right. (laughs) My Oscar is also related to one of those characters in which the mom uses Tupperware in the best way. Okay. (laughs) Which is to say... When the mom discovers Trina's chopped off fingers, she puts them in a Tupperware. Ah, to keep them fresh. To keep them fresh, because (laughs) what do Midwestern Canadian women do? They use Tupperware as well. Amen. And, you know, those fingers had been out in the lawn for, like, a couple days, so probably started smelling their own accord, but she wasn't going to let them get any... um, Grosser. <laughs> exactly. Tupperwares, keeping your fingers and your Carl's Jr. fresh. That's if you have any Carl's Jr. left over and you don't devour all of its hamburger deliciousness in a single setting. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, when you have the appetite of a teenage girl, you're craving some red beef. <laughs> Go to Carl's Jr. where we have quarter pounders. Love it. I'm so okay with this. (laughs) This will be our first real sponsorship. (laughs) So which movie are we watching next? Let's find out. You know, as always on Cult Fiction, we, um, we like to put our fate in the Hollywood crypt and use a random number generator to find out what our next film is. And that is going to be... Do-do-do-do-do-do. Number 203 out of 311. Uh, And so number 203, ooh, is going from one movie um, that is like... One movie that has a a feminine message, or at least kind of one, to another one that I I think we'll enjoy. Number 203 is the 1980s Madonna starring Desperately Seeking Susan. (gasps) Interesting. Okay. I'm not mad about it. I'm down. (laughs) All right. I, I mean, I love Madonna. I listen to her when I'm doing anything related to painting my house because there seems you know it's a direct there you go um neither here nor there please cut that um, uh, so for those of you watching along as of time of recording uh you can rent desperately seeking susan on um let's see amazon and voodoo and 2b tv well that's all for this edition of cult fiction if you want to keep up you can follow us on twitter at cult fiction cast You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when we 
desperately seek Susan as we watch 1985's Desperately Seeking Susan. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell. Wow.